Welcome to our next episode of the 5 Moments of Need Performance Matters series. This is Bob Mosier, one of the many co-hosts you'll meet throughout this series. So friends, are you trying to learn more about the 5 Moments of Need? Maybe how to design for them, implement for them, measure them and even sell them as an approach to your enterprise. Well, in the Performance Matters series, we will help you better understand the theory and best practices behind this powerful methodology and offer proven ways to put the five moments of need into practice. Okay, friends, welcome back to another Performance Matters podcast series. Bob Mojo here again, as I was just introduced in the intro to this. And again, today we are really fortunate to be joined by my colleague in crime, uh, dear friend and mentor throughout my professional life, Dr. Con Gottfriedson. Con, welcome. Hi, thank you, Bob. Great to be with you. As always, as always. So looking forward to this particular discussion. And what I, if you look back on our podcast of late, Con, what I'm enjoying about where we're going with, in this case, what we're calling our Methodology Matters series, is that we've talked a lot about, at the macro level, what is workflow learning. We've walked through definitions. We've had a number on the Experience Matters side of wonderful examples of those that have started this journey and have some great stuff to show. Today, we're going to go a bit deeper and peel the onion back. A lot of times we get asked the question, Khan, about is workflow learning based on learning theory? How long has workflow learning been around? What about the great work of Gloria Geary and Jay Cross and, and Allison Rossett, the, you know, dear friends of ours who wrote earlier books on performance support, informal learning, EPSS, back to Gloria's book. So today we're going we're to put a little bit of a bow around that and talk a bit about theory, if we may, get a bit deep into that to start, and then really run it, not so much the definition of workflow learning, but the approaches that we're seeing that people are calling workflow learning, and get a bit into pros, cons, and, and what might be the best way to get into this. So let's take a step back, and my gosh, you're the PhD in the room. <laughs> let's uh, talk a bit about, like anything we do in our profession, we should be grounded in theory. We should be responsible about all the great work that's been done in the world of learning before our, our time. So take us back a bit and give us a little bit of a history lesson, if you wouldn't mind, about sort of the schools of thought around learning theory and where, frankly, the beginnings of workflow learning started. Sure. I'd love to do that. Interesting. Back uh, 100 years ago when I was working on my PhD, I was introduced to the the thought of applied learning theory. Mm. So uh, applied learning theory is learning theory that that has been applied in such a way that it's proven itself. And that's important. And so as we talk about uh, learning theory, it needs to be applicable and actually have some track record of being proven in the real world of, of application. So I was grounded in my graduate work in behavioral and cognitive learning theory. Those are two of the three fundamental schools of learning theory. The third is constructivism, constructive learning theory, or experiential learning theory. The first real school of learning theory was behavioral, really, that, that I was introduced to. And, and Gagne and Briggs and others were really coming out of that school where it was all about training, right? It was about principles tied to the things that we could do that would make a difference and facilitate people learning and developing the skills that they need to develop. All very important. It focused behavioral psychology or behavioral learning theory 
focused on training. Again, it was out of the workflow. It was embedded deeply in the classroom models. And then starting to scratch the surface of asynchronous approaches, cognitive theorists came on board and said, uh, I'm sorry, behavioral approaches are great, but there's some cognitive things that we've got to be worrying about. In other words, you got to understand things. You got to know things as well as being able to do things. And there are cognitive constructs that make a difference in terms of our ability to transition to performance. And and so cognitive theory shifted our mindset from training really to learning. We began to focus on the learner and cognitive pieces, both of which are very important, the behavioral learning theory and cognitive learning theory. But at the same time, there was this movement going on that didn't get a lot of attention until much later, which was constructivism, experiential uh, learning theory. And the philosophy there, Bob, was that we learn by doing things in the real world, that experience is really important, that you can't have learning without factoring into that experience. The theorists in the early days or early stages of this couldn't quite figure out how to push learning into the workflow, but everything that they talked about was grounded in what works today in the, in the world of workflow learning. But in reality, the bottom line is you don't have workflow learning without the fundamentals coming out of behavioral learning and cognitive learning and constructivism. You just don't. All of it has to come to bear to help us put together this kind of solution that we need to have in the world of workflow learning. So it's almost kind of as if one builds upon the other. Yeah, it does. As these, as these theories matured. Yeah. Unfortunately, there are some people who sit in each of those camps and think that that's the camp that they're in, when in reality, each of these schools have a lot to offer. We draw upon the research and the work out of each one of these schools of learning theory to put together the methodology that we have for workflow learning. Brilliant. So can theory manifest itself in reality? I'm steeped in some instructional theory in my master's in education. Obviously, you went through much of it and then your great work as you worked in your PhD work and, and in the real world. And so not only is there a confusion in definition, not only is there a confusion in learning theory, we're seeing a lot of confusion in how workflow learning is approached. How does it manifest itself through the theories into how people are approaching it? So not only is there confusion about the definition, literally, which we talked about in a prior podcast, by all means, give a listen. But at the same time, we're seeing it being confused with how it's done. E-learning for yeah. years has been just in time. Yeah, I was on that bandwagon early on and, and I, I got it, but it was not quite workflow learning in the way that we define it today, as in you learn while doing, learn while in the workflow, learn while your work is still in front of you. We confused it with availability. Yep. And because we could not send you to a classroom, we could put you in an LMS, we could suggest a learning path, we could assess and test pre and post, see who took, who didn't, who completed, who didn't. We sometimes mislabel that as workflow learning because, frankly, it is in the workflow. I don't have to leave that to go to my classroom and so on. So let's talk through a couple workflow learning approaches that we're seeing 
talk about the pluses and minuses and sort of where we might want to direct people in this journey. So, Khan, let's kind of start with the most dangerous. Let's kind of (laughs) of approach it from that perspective. (laughs) Well, right. And and, and the reality is we hear this a lot. We've had workflow learning since forever. Right. The workflow is life. And we've, we've always, frankly, learned while living clearly yeah. right yeah. but what, what would be the most dramatic if you will of approaches well it's how i grew up on a dairy farm i was just given assignments it's what we call total immersion it's where you're on your own it's discovery uh, learning really but i learned by doing without any help i used to do this to our kids i'd give them an assignment to go out and do something on our property but my intent was for them to learn how to figure something out not really learn how to do something, to develop the skill of figuring it out. But in many cases, we have what we call immersive learning. It's where you just jump in and you don't have anybody to help you. You just learn on your own as you go and as you do. And that's kind of immersive learning is inefficient in terms of skill development. It, it takes a long time to get to where you need to be. And there's always high risk for failure. But positives, obviously, to your point, right, around critical thinking skills, problem solving, you know, maybe building confidence or my how courageous I might be as a thinker or a learner. But clearly, particularly in the professional environment, not really the best way to go. Yeah. So my dad would send me out to feed the cows. He, He never taught me how to do that. He'd go say, go feed them 10 bells of hay. I had to figure that out. There are many things that you can figure out and and learn how to do that. There are some things that you had not to be sent on your own to figure out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So so let's talk a bit about when others get involved. And there's really two approaches that we've seen where we assign someone to guide or be present or periodically be present. Well, for centuries, we've had the apprenticeship model, right? This is the model where you apprentice to someone and you're right at their side. Great artists were apprenticed, but all work was apprenticed out centuries ago. And you would just go in and you would work at somebody's side and you would learn by observing them and them coaching you. And they were always with you to help you through those things. That's the apprenticeship model. It's very costly to scale today. And it does take time for people to become proficient in that model. It's why we moved to these other models that we have today, why we've moved to classroom learning and other things is that the apprenticeship model, you just couldn't scale it and afford to scale it in that way. And so we've modified it a bit to this sporadic on-the-job coaching model that is like apprenticeship, kind of. But we have coaches and we assign them to coach and we send them in. The coaching model can be very effective in learning new and learning things for the first time. It's really tough to have a coach there, like at the moment, apply or change or solve. Very difficult to have them there in all the times that they need to be there to support people as they do their jobs. And, you know, it's funny, kind of, we hear this a lot. We have performance support. We have apply covered because we have coaching. Two other areas I think we've seen that have been dangerous in that is the fact that it's very difficult to get coaches to coach similarly, right? Consistency in the way they bring people to proficiency. You put 10 coaches in 10 different rooms. You give them the same question. You're probably going to get seven-ish different answers to the same problem. And to your point, 
whether the person gets me to the end game in the same amount of time or as efficiently is probably also difficult. And another thing we see with them, of course, is currency. How do you be sure every coach is caught up in the world we live in today with a rate of change, with what's the latest SOP, what's the latest regulation, all these kinds of things so that people are most efficient and on top of that. And frankly, Con, I think the thing I've taken as far as workflow learning is concerned is we want independent learners. Yeah. Right? We, want, we want people that can stand alone, you, a word you use quite often, in their ability to perform and continue their growth. And the danger of apprentice and coaching programs is unless the coaches coach really well, and we've done another podcast on ramp up and ramp down, the ability for a classroom or formal environment to intentionally remove the mentor, remove the coach, remove the apprentice, remove the instructor so that the student stands alone. Well, in, again, in many apprentice and coaching programs, that's a tough skill. Yeah. Coaching is the most misused tool that we have in our tool chest I of agree. learning. If we designed it properly and if we supported coaches properly, it could be so powerful. And yet we have them doing work that could be done in other ways and should be done in other ways. They need to be targeting the, those skills where the critical impact of failure is significant to catastrophic. They need to be working on higher order skill sets helping people move and transition to higher order thinking and higher order performance, not down in the nitty gritty tasks of the workflow. You know, and so often we pick those roles by ability. Yeah. We pick those roles by seniority. We assign a senior salesperson to a junior salesperson. And the problem is that in many cases, what we're talking about here is it's not just the content or the journey to the content. It's the dependency left that they're left with or not left with. It's their ability to do cognitive apprenticeship and scaffolding. All these words we use in education, which basically are all about ultimately moving the performer to being self-reliant. And, and to your point, Con, many coaching programs and the people who step up, God bless them, and volunteer, <laughs> which is also the other problem too, is getting people to even want to do it, are often not the folks that are in the right place to instruct in the way that workflow learning would actually be maximized. I agree. Yeah. You know, and then, as you mentioned, as we were beginning this discussion, there's the whole e-learning, asynchronous learning just in time. And we're seeing tools out there that can give you immediate instantaneous access to asynchronous learning resources. But you still have to stop your work to learn with those mm. asynchronous learning resources. And so, you know, it might help, but it's very wasteful. If I have to move through a 30-minute e-learning module to get to the nugget that I need to, that's, I'm stopping work. And maybe it's helped with micro-learning. You know, I'm a proponent of micro-learning to a degree. The problem with micro-learning is I've got to get to the right micro-learning piece at my moment of need, and really many times... I don't need to even do that. I can just get the help that I need to figure out how to do what I need to do with a, a true EPSS. And that's where the real power of workflow learning is unleashed. Micro learning can carry the day so far, but it's not where workflow learning can and should be. It's when you have a, a digital coach or an EPSS in place where I can get down to 
two clicks, 10 seconds, the steps of a task, and I can follow that task as I actually do my work. I am learning in the flow of work in an adaptive way. As we've talked about, once I'm doing that, there may be a call to drop down to a micro learning element because of the nature of things. But I don't always have to go there. That shouldn't be my first step in workflow learning. It should be a step that I take when I can't get there in other ways. Well, you know, kind of that, what we're talking about here is the pyramid. Yeah. Right. Again, like earlier, there's, it's interesting how this conversation kind of comes full circle because earlier we talked about the schools of learning theory being amalgamation of all three and, and a maturation through behaviorism all the way through constructivism. Well, the same thing here. I mean, we've, you've described a journey from the early days of total immersion thrown out in the field to fend for oneself all the way through to these what we today call EPSS or a digital coach. And then everything in between, the irony of each of those levels you discussed is that in and of themselves, they have strengths, but they also have significant weaknesses. And the digital coach we're talking about today and the performance support pyramid as a model, it encompasses everything we've talked about shy of immersion. It yeah. enables apprentices and coaches. It has just-in-time learning built into it. It will guide you to a macro learning if needed. But at the same time, it will let you get access to a simple job aid. And that's the power, I think, of this aha of the performance support pyramid. It's that any one of these approaches in and of themselves does not stand alone as workflow learning enabling. It's the mastery of that design and the creation of digital coaches as a single source of truth. We've heard dashboard used, but these types of frameworks that learners see as a way of getting to all we've discussed today and more in many ways. You're spot on, Bob. Brilliant, my friend. Well, as always, it's been terrific having you here. Friends, it's so important that we continue these discussions. We dig deeper into these theories. We'll be posting learning theorists and other things you can go to more directly in blogs and other related information to this podcast because we should be learned in our field. Nowhere along the line have we advocated being irresponsible or going into this world just guessing. All the great work, Con, you have done, all the work on workflow learning, all the work around the enable methodology is based on sound research. But what I love about where you've brought us and where workflow learning is today is that it really is a defendable amalgamation of the best work of the best in our industry that finally due to technology methodology and where the learner is today, we can bring it all together in a way in the workflow we've never been able to do before. So friends, appreciate you being here with us. Please tune into future podcasts and Khan, thanks for being here. Thank you, Bob. And we look forward to future podcasts and your comments and feedback. Thanks, friends. Well, that's it for this episode of the Five Moments of Need Performance Matters series. We look forward to future conversations around how to best put the five moments of need into practice. We welcome your feedback and can be reached on Twitter using my Twitter handle at BMOSH, as well as our Five Moments of Need website, which is www.5momentsofneed.com. We hope you're finding these helpful and will subscribe to future episodes. Have a great day, friends.